This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is David Hunt, President and CEO of Pigeon, a top 10 global asset manager with more than 1.3 trillion assets under management. David, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today in Knowledge at Wharton. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a genuine pleasure. So we, uh, you have an interesting concept about upside-down cultures that exist at some investment firms. Uh, perhaps we could begin by talking about what exactly you mean by an upside-down culture. Well, I think the culture of an outstanding investment firm, and I do use the word investment quite uh, determinedly as opposed to an asset gathering firm, but for an investment firm is really very different than most other cultures. For one thing, we're a fiduciary, which means that we are obligated to put our clients' interests first. Um, it means that we're motivated by uh, really delivering outstanding investment performance for our clients as opposed to uh, generating financial profits for, uh, for ourselves. And one of the most important aspects of that is, I think, the delegation of decision rights. And so in many traditional companies, you have kind of a hierarchical uh, approach where important decisions are uh, escalated up. And yet in great investment firms, we make as many decisions as we can as close to either the investment or as close to the client as, as we can. Because we believe that having you know, really smart, experienced people who are very knowledgeable about the asset class, who are close to the asset itself, make those calls is much better than moving it up the hierarchy where you have effectively less and less information as you get more senior. Right. So we could drill a little bit deeper. Uh, what would you say are the components of an upside-down culture? And even more importantly, what impact does it have on the investment firm's organization and ability to shape uh, diversity of thought and decision-making? Well, I think that one of the most important parts of a great long-term investment firm is the ability to... Um, both generate and then support people who have non-consensus views. I mean, by definition, if you basically have the same view as the market, you're not going to generate alpha. Mm -hmm. So we need to have a culture that will both generate alpha ideas, which are by definition different, and then support people who have those views, um, which are often unpopular, for sometimes a long time. I mean, you can be wrong for two years before you're right. And many organizations drive for consensus. And we do the opposite. We uh, try to foster lots of discussion. We try to have all points of view uh, in the room. We take meritocracy very seriously. So it's not just something we aspire to, it's actually an obligation, um, whatever your role is, not just to participate, but to have a point of view. As an investor, you get paid to have conviction. And out of these quite heated debates that we have come people who have views which are not what you read in the newspaper. And then we have a culture that allows people to go ahead and take those views and hang with them for quite long periods of time. And I think that that's what's really unique about uh, an investment firm that does this well. And it's, it's almost the opposite of what you find in a traditional corporate, more consensus-oriented culture. 
So could you give me an example uh, to illustrate what you mean? Oh, well, right now there's a wonderful example. Um, so we, uh, we have many value strategies uh, in, in equities. Um, as you probably know, value has now been out of favor for, I think we're going on 20 months. Um, and uh, the entire uh, industry has just rotated uh, into growth, uh, which has certainly done very well and out of, out of value. We've done a lot of careful analytics on whether or not these companies are cheap for a reason or cheap just because sentiment has moved against them. And we are absolutely convinced that they are cheap because of sentiment, that actually the quality indicators are very good. And so we are maintaining our approach to value, even though so far for 20 months, that's been actually quite difficult. Mm -hmm. And um, we believe that that's actually the hallmark of a uh, wonderful investment firm. If we deviated from that, mm -hmm. I think for us, that would be somewhat of a black mark mm -hmm. um, in waiting for that cycle to, to come back. That's interesting. So you sort of maintain the courage of your convictions regardless right. of... Uh, uh, regardless of the circumstances. We, we do, and, and that's not to say we don't question it a lot. So there was a lot of research that went into this, a lot, and we still, I mean, fairly regularly hotly debate, you know, what are all the we reasons that we could be wrong about this? Right. But ultimately, yes, we've stayed with the courage of, uh, of our conviction, and I think that's really important. I mean, we saw... Uh, for many of us who are a little old in the tooth, but we saw what happened right before the dot-com bubble, and we saw yeah. people who gave up on value right before that, right. and they missed one of the big bonanzas uh, in the last couple decades. Right. Well, it's very true. Uh, what do you think are the implications of an upside-down culture for long-term performance for, as it relates to your clients? I think it's pretty critical for long-term uh, performance because we want to have experienced professionals near the assets that they're responsible for um, because those assets do change over, uh, over time. I think in some ways if we thought we were going to get out of things one day to the next, um, maybe we wouldn't uh, care so much that people are very close. Let's take an example this time maybe from, uh, from real estate. Mm -hmm. I take great comfort in the fact that our senior investment professionals uh, know everything there is about the underwriting of an office building when we when we buy it. And we buy that with a seven, ten-year uh, view on, on, on it, uh, sometimes longer. And uh, the fact that that decision to do it, obviously we have an underwriting committees and, and we have risk management uh, closely involved in it, but remains with investment professionals who will continue to look after that, I think is really important. And I think it's one of the big differences between, say, the buy side and the banking industry where the team that originates things is often not the team that then manages the portfolio uh, long term and you have a real agency problem in that. Right. Now, when you think about it as a cultural issue, the upside down culture, do you think that these cultures exist just in investment management or also in other fields? Uh, and, and which other industries do you think could benefit from such a culture? And specifically, I know that you, you, you have uh, worked with McKinsey in the past. Uh, would management consulting be one of the fields in which such a culture might be valuable? I think uh, in many cultures which, uh, or many industries where 
talent is at the heart of the value proposition. Mm -hmm. It's not based on systems or brand. It's really based on talent the way the investment world is. That these have a lot of uh, a lot of applicability. Of course, each industry is is different, but the notion of trying to keep uh, the decisions down close uh, to the client, I think, is broadly applicable to, I think, uh, outstanding law firms. I see that. I see it in. Uh, I see it in outstanding groups of physicians. Um, you know, the higher you bubble up a healthcare decision above the actual practitioner of it, the worse, generally, the worse the outcomes. Uh, certainly, management consulting is a good example uh, of that as well. So, I think it has broad, uh, broad applicability to talent-oriented cultures. Now, uh, talent is good uh, when it works well. Uh, when talent is empowered a lot, sometimes it creates its own risks as well. And I was wondering what you th see as some of the major risks of an upside-down culture. Uh, could they include investment professionals feeling empowered to act in contrarian ways that might endanger the enterprise, like, a, say, a rogue trader bringing down a firm by taking you know, unwise risks? Uh, how would risk management work in such a culture? So I think one of the most important corollaries to having a, a culture that uh, is meritocratic and that also does keep decisions close to uh, the assets is a very strong risk management uh, and independent risk management culture as well. Yeah. Um, because I think that uh, we've seen this maybe more in banking than anywhere else where uh, when that culture is not really been in place and short-term incentives for traders get a little bit misaligned, bad things happen. In general, our incentive processes are quite long-term, which I think helps, but we also do have very clear and independent risk management processes which monitor uh, both uh, individual guidelines on behalf of clients as well as the overall portfolio risk that we're taking. Um, and we're pretty careful um, in making sure that we stay within um, all of those guidelines and that we do have senior people who are looking at the overall portfolio risk. Because when you think again about the benefits of having been through a few cycles, mm -hmm. it's less about the, the the office building and more that you've actually seen what happens to the real estate cycle through time. And you want those folks really looking hard at the overall portfolio characteristics that you have and the risk limits that you're employing. Right. Uh, coming from sort of the broad field of investment management to PGM specifically, uh, would you say PGM has an upside down culture and uh, how did it evolve? We think that we have a meritocratic culture um, and we think that uh, it is very important that we have uh, independent businesses that make decisions around different asset classes. So for us, you know, we, we span the gamut from we're one of the largest real estate investors in the world. We have a very large private credit business. We have one of the world's largest public fixed income business and we have two uh, public equity businesses. Um, and we do believe that having very different decision processes for different kinds of assets makes an enormous amount of sense. And in fact, many asset managers who've tried to become much more integrated mm -hmm. um, find out that actually those assets perform very differently and the kinds of 
culture that you need to manage them well are pretty different. And so we like the fact that we have what we call our multi-manager model, um, which keeps the decisions around both investments and most businesses to that asset class because they are so different. Now, has this uh, model evolved organically or is it something that you have consciously had to shape? The origins of PGM go back about 30 years and were shaped by actually John Strengfeld, who just last year stepped down as the CEO overall of Prudential. And uh, he was the one who believed that uh, the investment business was all about talent. And so uh, he needed to set it up independently. Uh, he moved it out of the insurance company and he set it on a path to build third party assets and third party uh, clients while, of course, maintaining uh, the role that it had in managing uh, the potential uh, general account and other other assets. Um, that, that model, which had as its core a belief that the most important thing was investment performance, um, not financial performance, uh, remains today. And uh, his belief was that small groups of people in real estate and in fixed income and equities should be different. And they have different cultures. They have very different approaches to uh, valuing assets. And therefore, those should be uh, encouraged to grow up independently. So our multi-manager culture really started uh, back at the formation uh, of the business. Now, as the industry has evolved, um, it's become clear that scale is more and more important. And so over time, uh, we've been doing things collectively across the managers, uh, like technology, investments in data, uh, investments in vehicle structures like uh, USITs or ETFs, um, that we do together as a trillion dollar manager rather than having the eight different managers do them separately. What are some of the pros and cons of the kind of structure that you're describing? Uh, does it work in, well in all market conditions, do you think? Well, there are clearly pros and, 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 and cons to it. Um, and it depends a lot on what your uh, pure objective function is. We're very clear that our objective function is uh, our client's investment performance. And for us, we see uh, through good times and bad that smaller groups of highly specialized, dedicated people tend to outperform uh, both benchmarks and, and peers. If you said to me, no, your, invest your objective is financial performance, then I'm pretty sure that the multi-manager does not necessarily maximize uh, that. But for us, um, it's worth having uh, a bit of duplication from in places mm -hmm. in order to get the kind of concentrated expertise um, that we have. And that's the, that's the trade-off that we debate. And of course, as the industry change, we change our views uh, on that. I mentioned technology probably as, a, as the best example of it. Right. I mean, hypothetically, let's, let's imagine that there were to be a financial crisis. Uh, would you still think that a multi-manager culture would work well in those circumstances? Or would the firm be better off with some sort of a centralized authority uh, concentrated at the top until the storm has passed? So uh, human nature being what it is, uh, there's always a belief that somehow in bad times, centralization will help. Uh, the reality is that's exactly wrong. 
Um, actually, we believe that we've been extremely well served. And of course, we've been doing this for a very long time through a couple of the financial, big financial crises by the independent managers. Because if we take private credit as an example, uh, even through the great financial crisis, our returns were very good. And they were very good because we had people close to all of those companies that we had lent money to. I am absolutely convinced that if we'd all of a sudden changed our minds and made those decisions at a higher level in the company who was not as familiar, we would actually be much worse off. So we were very happy with real estate, private credit, our, our, our uh, fixed income returns through the financial crisis um, because we felt we had superior decision making uh, supported by this multi-manager process. I was very pleased to hear you say a few minutes ago about the role that the former CEO played in, in shaping the culture. Uh, and I was wondering if you have any reflections on broadly the relationship between culture and leadership. Uh, how do you view the role of leadership in nurturing a, an upside-down or a meritocratic culture? Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the, I think, real strengths of the, the long-term development of PGM has been that there's only been, since John formed this, four leaders. Um, and, uh, you know, the person who took over from John as the head of the CEO, Charlie Lowry, had my job before me. So uh, I think there's been great consistency of our view of the strategy and our view of the, the, the model and the benefits right through those, those 30 years. And so uh, consistency of strategy is one of the most important uh, pieces of that. And I think we really do have that. To your question on leadership, I think we also have had people who have been lucky enough to sit in my seat a view that our job was as a conductor of a lot of very talented others and to serve them as opposed to being a charismatic leader that went around and told everybody what to do. None of the people, none of the four are, are, are wired that way. And I think that also that has been a real strength uh, of the development of the firm. I think we get more out of our people than people who have more of a top-down autocratic nature. So what would you recommend as some of the do's and don'ts for leaders who want to nurture a similar meritocratic culture in their organizations? Uh, and how should they measure whether it's working or not? Mm. It's a really uh, great, great question. And, I, and I, I don't know that I have the perfect answer for you uh, at all. But I can say that um, you know, the role of the leader in this kind of, of organization is primarily to ask the tough questions rather than to provide the tough answers. Mm -hmm. And if you focus a lot on getting the questions right and then hold your leaders accountable for coming up with their answer to those problems as opposed to imposing your own, um, you will find that, A, their answer is generally better than yours would have been. Um, and also, at the end of the day, uh, they own it. And I think that has unbelievable uh, power. And so the way I measure this is whether or not we have remained innovative and nimble even as we've grown larger. You know, one of my fears that I wake up with is, you know, as, as now one of the largest asset managers in the world, are we losing that edge that we had when we were smaller? 
And, uh, and at least as far as I can tell in terms of the measurement of products and product development and offices and expansion of clients, we haven't. But I watch that really carefully and I do worry about it. Uh, as you think back on your own personal leadership journey at uh, PGM, uh, what is the biggest leadership challenge that you have faced? Uh, how did you deal with it? And even more importantly, what did you learn from it? So I think that the uh, most difficult aspect of uh, leading in, in the investment world is that you are around people who don't really want management and don't like management very much for themselves. They, they, they actually want to be investors. And they're, they're never happier than to come into their office and really dive into the spreadsheets uh, around whatever asset they're doing. And they, do, they don't want interference from headquarters, management, anything else. Um, but unfortunately, as these, these businesses grow, they do actually need uh, some level, I would say not of management, but of leadership. They do need a strategic direction. They do need a sense of where we're investing for the future. They do need a sense of, uh, you know, how we're actually evolving with, with our clients. And so uh, while I think the need for day-to-day -day management is relatively low because most people here are very high ambition, hardworking, the need for leadership is pretty high. And I think it's, it takes many people, it certainly took me a long time to figure that out and to figure out how to stay out of the day-to-day -day management while still providing the overall construct and orchestration capability that you need in order to lead. Um, as, you, as you look to the future, uh, what, what do you think will be some of the greatest challenges that investors will face? And, and uh, what will be, uh, uh, what, what's a prudent way to think about the future? Well, you know, we're never a better time to contemplate that uh, as we enter a new decade. So the last decade, uh, you know, if you had just invested in the S&P, you'd be up about 13% a year. And even a nice balanced portfolio, you'd be up 9%. Um, so human nature loves to anchor on the past. Yeah. And, um, you know, as we look around, many investors think, oh, well, that's a decade long. You know, maybe, maybe that kind of 9% is a very reasonable estimate for uh, what, what could be made. Now, of course, this was the fifth best decade since the 1860s um, for investing, and that's sort of often lost. And our biggest worry is that people have an inflated sense uh, of what returns actually should and could be for the next decade. And if you have too high an expectation, how do you reach it? You reach it by taking more risk. And so we're seeing this great movement toward higher risk assets. Mm -hmm. As people think, well, even with rates really low, I need to make 8%, I need to make 9%. Well, you can do it with enough leverage, but we do know how that works. And so if you were to say, well, what's, what's kind of the seed of the next crisis that's being sown now? Right. I would say it's uh, people having too high uh, a, an expected uh, return. For, for us, we look at the next decade and we say 4 to 5%, that'll be just you should consider yourself doing fine. But uh, I don't think that is the dominant view out there at, at all. And people look at their recent history and say, why should it be? And that's the risk. That's, that's, a, that's a good way of thinking about it. I have one last question. How do you define success? As a, as a business leader or? Both, as a business leader and personally for yourself. 
personally for myself, uh, I, I believe in balance. Um, you know, my professional life is only a part of who I am. I've always tried not to allow that to, what I do to become who I am. And I think that kind of balance is very important and it allows you also to survive the ups and downs of any professional life that you, that you need to. Um, what I value most out of the professional part is feeling as if I'm making a difference. I'm not very motivated by uh, talent. I'm actually not that motivated by money. I think that uh, you know, building uh, a firm the way we have over, over what's now coming into almost a decade is really fun and impactful because it has made a difference and you can, you can see it happening. And I think if that stopped being the case, I wouldn't be happy no matter how wonderful a title I had. And I think, uh, I think being driven by impact is a really important part of professional success. David, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. It's such a pleasure to see you again. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.